so much better. So much better. No crackle. No crackle. Crackle's gone. You know, you know what it is? I, I think I need a new computer, Ben. Oh, wow. Let <laughs> me. The, oh, the, the, fl- the plugs are dusty. We got a whole we, – we could do a whole show on this. <laughs> All right. Let's go to apple.com. Uh, what store do you want right now? <laughs> Can you please, please, please spec me a fully, a fully maxed out uh, Mac Pro. Yes, and please charge it to NC State. Sure, sure, and I think we can get you one of those uh, twenty-five thousand uh, dollars monitors. Yeah, Pro yeah. Pro Display XDRs. P- please get it with a stand. Believing is seeing. Wait, <laughs> is that, I think that's what seeing is believing. Don, it's the first thirty-two inch Retina six K display ever. Do you know how many nits there are? Sixteen hundred. So, so many nits, Ben. Everyone's talking about the nits. I got, I got nits. It's got my favorite is. You, you've got nits. That's a different problem. It's a problem. I don't have nearly enough nits. That's the problem. It's got a P three wide color gamut. Um, innovation in every layer. Less glare and and Don even less glare. Nano texture glass. Two hundred eighty PPIs. This is this is where we need to go. Um, with the stand, I, it's it's a lot. It's I think we're gonna have to invest all of our money into this. All of our profits. <laughs> all of our profits go into this. Oh man, that's it's it's uh, this is the way to go. Um, so, so speaking of speaking of profits, um, we're uh, we're making uh, we're making less uh, money. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> this month. Always. Why is because, that? Tell, tell because I had to I had to hire I had to hire a professional to fix the audio. Right. Right, for right. episode 200, which uh, uh, you have all now uh, listened to, I'm assuming people that are listening to this. Yeah, yeah, because this will be this is episode 201. 201. So, yeah. So, so 200's been um, uh, been posted, but the listeners of 200 won't know unless they read it in the post that we posted about it, um, which is yet to be written. But they won't know that uh, the the audio. It's a li- it was a live show that we did in Louisville at a um, conference uh, that was run by. Um, uh, AFTO and FDA for RRTs, which I think is the rapid response teams that do food safety and other things. Um, anyway, they uh, we we had some really bad audio because uh, it was explained to us that uh, there were uh, it, it was a big big room with four open mics and it's hard to to record that. Well, you know, a part of my part of my um, fixing the audio problem, I consulted with some uh, professional podcasters, Ben. Yes, yeah, the and, people from the from the industry, and, and 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 one of them said, "Yeah, you know, what happened is there might have been four open mics, um, but they recorded the room audio instead of the mic audio." Oh. And, and and he he showed me a little Easter egg how you can tell because right at the beginning of the recording you hear an unmiked voice that's very close to uh where the audio is coming in saying are they recording now yeah i think it's recording okay looks good <laughs> or something like that <laughs> which is which is the audio engineers uh basically going on record as having uh screwed up the audio not so so w- what happened was um they used a um a, a sony walkman um tape recorder <laughs> Uh, in the record function, recording <laughs> through the uh, headphones of, of a Walkman and then handed us a, an old cassette tape, uh, yeah. <laughs> which, which was difficult to get into dot, uh, .wav format. Uh, <laughs> it was so difficult. <laughs> it's hard. It was hard. My, um, so when you get your new um, Mac Pro uh, with your 32-inch <laughs> Retina 6 uh, Pro Display HDR, um, it, I don't think it has a port for cassettes. 
I think I think there are there's some USB C's and there there's probably an HDMI, but there's no cassette port. So that was it's not. I don't think that's even going to help um, with with this issue. Yeah, it's too bad. It was I, I thought, um, and and I don't. I you know, I actually do like to toot our horns a lot, uh, and I wish that there was some foley that we could add there with an actual toot. There you go. It's a bing. It's a bing. I thought it was a particularly great episode. I, it was. Yeah, it was. And it was it was anyway, it was so it was so nice. The people uh, people from um, the, the RRTs were like just such such great hosts and they made wonderful show art and they sung us a song and it was it was just good stuff. So, uh, yeah, it was good. Good time was had by all. Um, and I think the audio is going to actually be not too bad. So, oh, well, that's that's good. I mean, it seems like you've got you've reached out to lots of to the pros uh, on our behalf, which is which is nice. Thank you. Thank you. Other podcasters. Um, Indeed. Yeah, what what a community! What a community! Uh, <laughs> it takes a it takes a village, Ben. Takes yeah, it takes a it takes a podcast. It takes what do, what do they call it? A network it takes a network. This is the podcast <laughs> network, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so so I got. I mean, there's stuff I want to talk about. It's this is our. Uh, I I mean, I think this is our last uh, episode before the holidays, uh, unless we squeeze something in like uh, this week. Not for opsec reasons, but um, this is, we're recording this on December sixteenth. So so we I've, I have some holiday cheer to bring to bring you in to bring our listeners. Um, I uh, I feel like I'm I'm telling you an agenda. There are things that I want to talk about. Um, the things that I like, uh, this may, might be the annual, uh, li- you know, check out my Amazon wish list. Now there's, there's really nothing on my wish list this year. Um, but, uh, I, I have, I want, before we get too far into, um, the, the world of food safety, th- I have been watching in spurts, a documentary on Netflix that I want you to go. This is your homework. Mm, okay. It's, it's called echo in the Canyon. And it's a 2000, and this according to Wikipedia, it's a 2018 film directed by Andrew Slater. Um, but it is a, uh, it's a fantastic documentary on the, uh, on Laurel Canyon in the sixties mm. and yeah. many great recording artists are interviewed. Um, some of the, the, I mean, I've, I've been a fan of, of a lot of this music. Yeah. Uh, we, uh, you know, you don't have to go very far to, um, to know that that Don and I both love Neil Young and uh, Buffalo Springfield and Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young are both featured in this in this documentary. Uh, but there's like the Mamas and the Papas, who I I'll give you, I don't really like that band. I don't like that sound. Well, oh, well, well, I'm not sure what's happening. <laughs> you, know, you know, you know what happens is David Crosby's uh, Net- in Netflix, the background. <laughs> uh, if, you, if you if you open Netflix, uh, it it starts playing audio. Of course, that's it does. super annoying. Way to go, Netflix. Uh, I don't. I'm not a Mamas and the Papas fan, but there's a, a really good section on the Mamas and Papas. And then I went and and added some Mamas and Papas songs to my uh, to my downloads in, in Apple Music. Uh, anyway, go check. It's a really yeah. good uh, uh, documentary. Yeah, they're they're pretty good. I I, 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 mean, I like the Mamas and the Papas. I, I'm oh, there's some one of the songs of theirs that I like. But anyway, oh, so speaking of um, things that we're watching on Netflix, because I just loaded the Netflix page, um, and the audio didn't start playing. Um, we are watching uh, the Kaminsky Method. Oh yeah, yeah. So okay, is it good? You like this? It's it's fantastic. Okay. It's so it's so good. We've watched all the other seasons. The new season just dropped, and I think we. Last night we binged like six episodes. Um, it's it's Michael Douglas is just such a so great. Uh, yeah, it's 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 it was yeah it's 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 good stuff. Okay, cool. Have have you um, 
But have you watched Barry on HBO? No, you've talked about it. Okay, yeah, um, yeah. You should yeah. go watch it. That's we haven't finished it yet, and that's. But as I read the, um, the description here of uh, he may be in his twilight years, but aging acting coach Sammy, Sandy Kaminsky isn't ready to ride off into the sunset just yet. There's a great character in Barry that uh, Henry Winkler plays, who oh, and he's an mm-hmm. act, he's an acting coach. Um, so that's what what made me think of that. Uh, okay, we'll go. Okay, Kaminsky method. So there's a there's a two thumbs up from that. Uh, we're not, now we're in the real Siskel and Ebert part of our podcast where we uh, tell people what to what to watch. Um, so two other things that uh, I've been uh, I've been watching. I've I've rewatched. Uh, so I've, I've mentioned on on the podcast in the past that my kids really are into Parks and Recreation, Parks and Rec as it's known in the in the world of comedy. Um, on uh, Hulu, and so they have watched every episode, and now they're getting into The Office, and there is an episode of The Office that I w- watched with them last night. Um, it's it's actually a two-episode uh, arc um, in season five, episodes 14 and 15, and I, will, I think it is called um, Office. Google that. Click, click, click. It is called Stress Relief. Um, if you have never watched The Office, the American Office, not the the British Office, and you want to start somewhere that is maybe one of the best written t- like two episode shows, um, this is where I would this is where I would start. Stress relief. The Office. Go to season uh, season five, episodes fourteen and fifteen. And if you don't like The Office, or if you don't like these episodes, you won't like the rest of the show. Uh, but right. I re- I watched these with my, with my kids last night, and and it's I mean there there's a, a few parts of this that are a little bit maybe not appropriate for nine year olds. So don't please don't judge don't don't at me, don't judge my parenting. But uh, it is uh, it, it's an excellent. Uh, it, it was really really it's really really good. So it was, it was funny. Um, the other thing that I watched with my kids last night or this this weekend was Ocean's Eleven. You uh, you remember that that movie that movie? I I do. That's a great movie. Is it? it, it uh, yeah, it's it's. The, I, I like all the oceans movies. All the oceans. <laughs> all, all the great oceans. All the great oceans. Eleven, twelve, thirteen, whatever it takes. Uh, and <laughs> that's like three jokes. That's right. It's like a hat uh, on a hat. They say. <laughs> um. So I I forgot how like joyful this movie was. And again, there's a couple of parts where. Danny, um, the, my, my, my lovely partner in crime, partner in real life and, and, and wife, uh, looked at me and was like with raised eyebrows. Uh, we're like, wow, well, are we going to have to talk about um, why they're sitting in uh, – why are there dancers in the background that don't have a lot of clothes on? Uh, so also something that, that you know, maybe, maybe not fantastic for nine-year-olds but a, uh, a, a very fun heist movie. So – so we watched we watched that we had a, we had a big weekend of hockey a lot of a uh, lot of lot of uh, games um, and a and a trip to DC uh, for for hockey and then came home relatively early last night and and watched uh, two episodes of The Office and Ocean's Eleven. Cool and it was cool yeah yeah so Kristen said what do you want to what Christmas movies do you want to watch this year and I said how about Die Hard yes <laughs> which which I haven't watched in years and which some people would dispute as a Christmas movie but um, yeah so. There- there's a an, another so I'm all about um, I'm all about documentaries on Netflix mm-hmm. and and so Echo in the Canyon. There is a uh, it, it's a documentary series that's that's done in kind of like a, oh I don't know it's a little cutesy way uh, called the movies that made us 
And Die Hard is one of the movies that that Netflix they, they interview stunt guys and the director and and it's it, it's kind of cool like you get like an oral history of of Die Hard and I watched that um, this week as well and and made me uh, think about okay is Die Hard a, am I am I in a good situation if we get past Ocean's Eleven and Danny says that it's okay that that I watch Die Hard with the kids. Is it is this the Christmas that we watch uh, Die Hard as a family? Because it is a Christmas movie to me, for sure. Although it opened in uh, it opened in June uh, or July or something, it was a summer summer blockbuster. Hmm. But it's a, definitely about uh, Christmas for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you guys, the, if I remember correctly, Love Actually is one of your uh, your annual views, right? It, it is. People love to hate that movie, but. <laughs> Excuse me. We we like it. We I I, I love to love it. Uh, it's but that's one. I think there's a little too. There's not enough uh, fast moving parts in that for uh, for my kids to uh, to watch it. And then we have to explain. well, and there's a lot going on. Right, yeah. you have to kind of pay attention. Um, well, it's, I, yeah, we got to explain affairs and no oh, spoiler yeah. alerts. Right, like uh, 2003. Yeah. If you haven't seen it, also um, at least one of the actors is dead, so you're behind the times. Um, now, but, uh, it, yeah, there's, there's a there's adult themes, uh, in this, uh, a rated R movie, I think. Yes. Um, but yeah, I like, I'm a fan of love actually. I think we'll probably watch that on, on, on one of the days this, uh, this year. It's, it, it is definitely, well, I think we watched it on Christmas Eve last year and it's R- Richard Curtis who, for those of you, this is right in your sweet spot, Don, right? Oh, yes. Right. Like we've got a, a, a very funny British writer um and lots of it, it's it's although richard curtis's movies which i love um including four weddings at a funeral um it, they are they are much brighter than the than the de- detective series you like to watch much <laughs> yes. brighter but they're but they're equally british equally is british and and there's some dark humor have you have you watched four weddings and a funeral recently I have not. Not. Re- not not recently, but but uh, we have watched it several times. I, I really like that movie. I, it is one of the movies that I remember watching, uh, r- renting it at a at a video store, Blockbuster or something like that, and then taking it home, watching it, and then immediately rewinding it to rewatch it again. It was, and and I was probably like seventeen or eighteen years old. I just remember, I, I just loved, I loved everything about the comedy. It was such a great story. Uh, yeah, I, I was part of, as according to to Wikipedia, um, it, the film was made in six weeks, cost under three million pounds, but uh, worldwide box office in excess of two hundred and forty five million dollars. I guess I wasn't part of the box office because I did not see it in theater, but I really, really love that movie. Um. What else? Yeah, and, and 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 it's from 1994. Wow. Right, right. That's what I was asking. About. I wonder if it's um, if it's if it stands up. Uh, it, in 1999, uh, also according to Wikipedia, it placed 23rd on the British Film, Films Institute's 100 Greatest Films of the 20th Century. What uh, I've not, I'm looking at that list. The only movie <laughs> in the top 10 that I've seen is Train Spotting. <laughs> Which I have yet to see, I oh. really, and I've heard it's really good, and it's been on my list for a while, and I just just never get to it. So what? Yeah, it, a well done movie, very sad. I actually, watched. Uh, so I don't know if I talked to talk to you about this. I um, in one of the trips that I took this fall, uh, I I rewatched Train Spotting on my iPad, and watching it as a father, mm. made it, it was it was harder to watch than it was as a teenager. 
Yeah. Right. Like, cause I mean, for those who, who don't know about train spotting, it's, it's about, um, heroin. It, it's a, a, really, it's a, you McGregor's the, um, the main character. It's, uh, based on a book called train spotting, I think. Um, and it, it is, uh, it, it's, it was difficult to watch as a as a father of a soon to be teenager, where where Ewan McGregor's uh, character, um, j- you know, the, the the entire movie is really describing how as a as a Scottish uh, male in the nineteen nineties he's surviving uh, heroin addiction, and it's yeah, it was just I mean it was difficult. So, but it's it's an ex like uh, an excellent movie, and now uh, making me. Uh, uh, maybe rethink my my ideas of of showing Ocean's Eleven and Die Hard to my kids. So. <laughs> Real time follow up uh, on that. <laughs> uh, well, those are those are good. I, I, I uh, another another movie. Now that we're in uh, movie safety talk, another movie that I've rewatched multiple times. Have you ever uh, have you watched um, Have you ever seen Dazed and Confused? Yes, we and we've even talked about it on okay. the podcast before. I good. Think. Okay. So uh, yes. All right. Well, good. Give, then go back and listen to that episode where we talk about it, <laughs> listeners, because it's another one of my favorite movies. Anyway, Train Spotting was was excellent. Um, so, uh, so I mean, I've got I've got some uh, I got some food safety stuff that I want to I want to start with. <laughs> if you're ready, Let's get into it. If you're ready, so I got I got an email. This is this is in real time. I I wanted I got this email as you were messing with your. Um, uh, w- with your Skype audio, which we will cut out because uh, Don and I both had Skype issues early on and he was crackly. Uh, but uh, there was very, I think there was very fun um, banter, but we, you, no one will get to listen to it. Anyway, while oh, you were wait, doing so that. No, you, ben, you will appreciate this. We Do you know when we talked about the movie Days Then Confused on Food Safety Talk? No, no, I don't. Uh, it was episode seven. Do you know what oh. episode seven was entitled? No, that's a long Dazed time and confused. Oh, well, well, that's, <laughs> that's amazing that we would have, uh, titled our show that. Yeah. That's so classic. anyway, so that's, I, I would not have, uh, thought that we did it that long ago. That was on November 26th, uh, 2011. So, uh, comes around what goes around comes around November 26, 2011. So Don, we've been, we've been doing this now for, uh, eight years. That seems weird. It does. We're, I, I think we're getting better. Uh, I think, <laughs> well, you know, one thing that's not getting any better. Yeah. My ums and ahs. I was about <laughs> to talk about that. Um, so, so uh, a new listener to the show who I won't name sent, uh, well, a, a, new, new, uh, perhaps not listening anymore listener to the show. Yeah. And we talked about this on episode 200, but, uh, the, uh, too long didn't read version of this is I, am an awe too much, which many think, including me, many think it's endearing. Many have said what an endearing, uh, what an endearing part of your, your speech. Uh, and, uh, yes. Yeah, so it buys me time as I think about what I'm going to say next, but uh, a listener wanted to know if it gets better in the future, and it doesn't because we're in the future and it's the same. <sighs> um, okay, so so here's the here's the real time follow up. I just sent you uh, a message uh, or a link, Don, and this is this is something that I, I think we can talk about on uh, on on another uh, podcast at some point, but I do want to talk about it right now because it's holiday. A 141-year-old fruitcake is a Michigan's family heirloom. Uh, So this is uh, Dateline, Tecumseh, Michigan. Some families pass down jewelry, watches, or even recipes, but a Michigan family has its own heirloom, a 141-year-old fruitcake. 
It's a great thing, said Julie Rudinger, or Rudinger, the great, 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 great granddaughter of Fidelia Ford, who baked the cake in 1878. It was a tradition. It's a legacy. The cake was initially preserved to honor Ford. She established a tradition of baking the cake and letting it age for a year before serving it during holiday seasons. Ford died at age, age 65 before 1878 cake could be eaten. And by the time the holidays arrived, the family considered her handiwork a legacy, not food. Until his death in 2013, the Cake was in the care of Runger's father, Morgan Ford, who was Fidelia Ford's great-grandson. He stored it in an antique glass dish on top shelf of a china cabinet in his Tecumseh home, which is where it remains today. He took the cake or took care of it till the day he left the earth. We knew it meant a lot to him. Guinness World Records doesn't have an entry for the oldest fruit cake. Excellent. I don't but, know why not. I don't know. Well, this one would work. Would end. But as cakes in general, uh, but for as as for cakes in general, the Ford fruit cake is nowhere world nowhere near the world's oldest. The Detroit News reported that honor goes to a four thousand one hundred seventy six year old cake that was found in an Egyptian tomb, according to the Guinness Organization. Um, during the ninety three years that the Morgan family held on to fruit cake, he showed it off at church and family gatherings and shared stories about its history. He really enjoyed sharing the joy of the cake. Uh, said one of his daughters. He took a lot of pride into it. So, so the question that I got, Don, and this is a, I'm going to do, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll do an interview at uh, 12:30 today once we're once we're done the podcast um, uh, for the Today Show. Uh, so the question I got was, I was wondering if you could hop on the phone for a quick interview about this 141 year old uh, fruitcake. Is it safe to eat? What could happen if you ate it? Um, so. What I've talked about fruitcakes uh, a little bit on previous shows and did some um, a, a little bit of pontificating, I guess, uh, for with Matt Shipman about this. But what do you what, what do you think the risks are with a 141 year old fruitcake? Um, and again, not, not to get disgusting. too far into risk, risky or not, but <laughs> yeah, 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 it might be disgusting. Um, I, I'm not, I'm not worried about it from a microbiological point of view because of it's a, it's a low water activity food. So, um, you know, any, any microbiological changes that would have happened have already happened. So no, I'm, 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 I'm not worried about it. I think it's probably gross. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I, I, I think that's it. The, the thing that, that I question in these a little bit is, um, every once in a while you get like a high moisture fruitcake and the, the water activity matters. Like all of, this is the stuff that I, that I talked about um, when I did this post a couple of years ago, uh, all the dried candies, everything that's in there uh, is pretty low water, water activity. I would assume that if, if it wasn't, uh, if there were some, some issues with growth, we would have seen it by now, right? Like it would have molded over probably the preservations happening through lo low water activity and a combination of a lot of, uh, alcohol and my guess is at 141 or, or 141 years ago it was probably rum that was that was also used uh, in the, in the preservation. So so you've got what what water is there is probably also uh, has has a lot of alcohol and solution in it. So so I w I'm not worried about growth. Uh, well, and I, I'm thinking that the alcohol might have uh, evaporated too. I'm not I'm not sure there's that much alcohol in there. Oh, that's a good point too. Right, right. So. So, so it still comes down to water activity. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to, uh, I'm, I'm going to, uh, answer, uh, today's show here in a little bit, but, uh, my, the, the abstract article that, that we'll link to in show notes is entitled fruitcake. Will it last forever? 
<laughs> it depends on what your definition of fruitcake and forever is. It, yeah, ding. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, it's so funny. I did, I did, I did some work for uh, uh, a uh, company, uh, a small company, startup company that had a fruitcake recipe, um, and I was searching my hard disk for it um, to see if I found. And it was like pre Mac, uh, like pre pre two, the year two thousand. So I was pretty pretty possible, pretty likely I was not going to find anything. But I do want to share two things that I did find with you. Um, <clears throat> One is an article that we had slated to talk about on episode 115, which I don't think we did, um, and that uh, is a 2016 article entitled, Is It Safe to Eat Fruitcake While You're Breastfeeding? And um, this includes um, information from North Carolina State University. Whoa. Is it me? <laughs> Are you uh, – I don't know. Um, it doesn't ref- doesn't mention you. Um, it says, according to North Carolina State University, the U.S. Department of Agriculture noted it's the most commonly prepared fruitcake, and it will last two to three months in the refrigerator without spoiling. Let's. Uh, oh, here we go. Let's click this link. Open link in new tab. Um, uh, and this is a. Uh, oh, this is an article from December fifth, twenty fourteen, written by. Well- your friend and mine, Matt, Matt Shipman. Shipman. Fruitcake, will it last forever? Ben, we've wow. got a complete circle. Well, this is it. We're, we're, uh, we're, we're in the echo chamber now. And then maybe someone else will listen to this podcast today and then write an article referencing the podcast, which references this paper which or this article uh, at the Baby Center. Um, is that where it is? The one that you're looking at? Holiday foods to avoid during pregnancy? Or is that another? Is that another article? Uh, this is from a website called Romper, Romper, which and the article is entitled "Is it safe to eat fruitcake while you're breastfeeding?" Wow. Okay. Well, this is that uh, is also picked up by uh, what my my googling skills by uh, thebabycenter.com holiday foods to avoid during pregnancy. How about that? But but I think perhaps the most important discovery on my hard disk, which is not really a discovery because I knew it already, is um, there is if you if you search my hard disk for fruitcakes, uh, what you find pretty close to the top is um, an amazing album by Jimmy Buffett, which I would highly recommend, called Fruitcakes. Um, uh, it's got uh, everybody's got a cousin in Miami, um, uh, the the titular fruitcakes, uh, and then a wonderful for those of you who are fans of the Grateful Dead, a wonderful wonderful cover of uncle john's band which is uh, which is a grateful dead song so uh lots of uh, lots of good lots of good stuff um in the fruitcakes album by uh, jimmy buffett oh excellent oh oh i had okay so i know we're jumping around a little bit but um this uh I, there was one other thing on my list of things that i wanted to share that people should go listen to uh i i would say friends of us friends of the podcast uh people that we kind of know from the internet um uh john roderick and ken jennings they have uh, omnibus is is their podcast uh they uh, we we talked a little bit about this they they did a, a great show on canning a while ago that don talked about um on twitter with john and then john responded in the podcast about pedantic uh messages from <laughs> from dr don which was great anyway um they did a wonderful entry entry uh, t- uh 1211 dash or uh, point uh, JB2111 on square dancing that I shared with someone who will re- rename, remain nameless but does listen to the podcast, someone that we know at a federal agency. And it was an excellent, excellent episode on the history of square dancing. Um, and so I, I shared that uh, uh, with our um, uh, with our friend. And 
Uh, the the message that I got back that was square dancing. OMG, square dancing is an activist activist fraud to appease, appease conservatives. Who knew? <laughs> so uh, so anyway, go go listen to go listen to that. Um, it's a it's another it's it's a great episode. One probably the best podcast I've listened to um, in, the, in the last uh, couple of weeks. Oh wow, cool! And yeah. and I I, I want to say too, I am really enjoying uh, you're wrong about which we have also yes. talked about. Uh, before I am, and it's it's hard because I've got a lot of podcasts to keep up with. Um, uh, currently, I am listening to episode 271 of the talk show where um, uh, noted um, podcast uh, uh, person Jason Snell, who 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 might or might not be someone who offered an opinion about uh, how a four mic podcast might or might not have been recorded. Thank you, Jason. Um, is, is, is talking with is talking with John Gruber about a, a lot of different things, including how many things they, they opened the episode with talking about John's microphone problems and how podcasts can go wrong. So I, I felt immediately, uh, immediately right at home. But um, what I want to share with you is I'm really loving uh, you're wrong about. Um, and actually, I'm partway through listening to the episode on uh, ebonics which uh, which is again uh, highly recommended I, i'm i'm sort of picking and choosing like what things i think are interesting and so like i said I'm currently listening to the the ebonics uh, controversy episode which is which is just fantastic oh excellent yeah i really like that i like that show um another one that uh that, that it, there's a crossover there where Danny really likes that show, um, so we can listen to that one together uh, in the in, in the car with with kids. And sometimes the, the sometimes we have to deal with appropriateness of uh, of the topics. But another one that I've gone back into the archives and listened to is Heavyweight, the Jonathan Goldstein uh, podcast. And so I, I know that Merlin's talked about that podcast on a couple of different shows. I don't know if you've had a chance to add it to your no. grow, growing list of podcasts that you might not listen to, but it's, it's a really good one, um, as well. And it's a you know, fellow Canadian, uh, who, who is an interesting, uh, um, he's a, he's a really good storyteller. Uh, and that's what heavyweight's all about storytelling. So, um, so yeah. Um, Speaking of storytelling um, and and fruitcakes and food safety and all those things, I so um a, uh, something that I've mentioned a few times on on the podcast we we run a uh, certified food protection manager uh, certification program called Safe Plates or it's under it's not called Safe Plates it's it's under this you know big brand of Safe Plates this is kind of my extension program I get to go teach this class probably for the first time in four years today this afternoon. Uh, to to some folks uh, here in Raleigh and uh, and it's all I, I was prepping for that last night and and a little bit this morning and going back through our powerpoints it, it, it reminds me when I look at it, it the importance of storytelling and trying to to convince people that food safety is important and the it's the the whole course is based on outbreaks and a series of stories that. That as it, it's similar to what you and I talk about, things that that happen that we can learn from, and trying to distill that down for a manager of a restaurant or uh, a catering company or uh, you know any sort of food service uh, facility, and so it, it's uh, it, it reminds when when I think about it. And and sometimes I, I it was sometimes with like the administrative things that you're doing and day to day things and trying to write things I forget about the importance of of really viewing stories and sharing them with with people. So I'm I'm excited to go do this for the first time in in a while. Like you know I tell a lot of stories, but I don't tell a lot of stories to the real frontline people 
uh, too much. And so, so anyway, that's, I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited to go do that. I'm getting, they're, they're pulling me out of the, uh, out of retirement and put me into the field. Cool. So what, what's the program? What's the name of the program? It's called safe plates? plates certified safe plates for food managers. And you may or may not be able to find it. I'll, I'll send you a link. Uh, mm-hmm. It's on our, our food safety portal. We only oh, offer yeah. it. It yeah. comes right up. First hit in, in Google. Yeah. Safe place for food managers. Yeah. We only right now offer it in, in North Carolina, but we've we've got five or six other extension folks across the country who are interested in, in learning more about the program. And, and so for us in 2020, our, our job is to to train some some other trainers in other states and, and offer this in, in different places. So, but it's, uh, I've, I've talked a little bit about this, uh, it, it, you know, in, in the past, but it's, it's, I guess our take on the, how do you, how do you get someone ready for an ANSI accredited certified food protection manager exam, which is the jargon and mumbo jumbo that's, that's used in, um, in, in the food code on what someone at a restaurant, if their if their state or jurisdiction is following the food code requirements, the type of training that, that a manager would be required to do. Um, so yeah. Uh, the other thing I wanted to, uh, um, bring up in this world was, where was it? Talked about Echo in the Canyon. Oh, 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 oh. Hey, so I'm drinking out of, this made me think, uh, what, what, I'm drinking out of one of my favorite mugs, my uh, MMWR uh, <laughs> mug, which, uh, which I've talked about on, on Barf Blog. Anyway, that was, that was the mug I chose today. And it reminded me of something that I read last week in MMWR um, that is a little bit adjacent to food safety. So let me drop this because I didn't put this in the in the um, in Dropbox for you, but so you're going to see it now. Anyway, the article is notes from the field: hospital water Ooh. contamination associated with su- a pseudo outbreak of Mycobacterium porcinum. Porcin- porcinum? I, I think I don't know. Is that the way to to pronounce it? Anyway, yeah, porcinum is how I would say. Yeah, I tweeted about this because I thought yeah. it was fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So so just uh, uh, to. Take a little bit from uh, from this. There was uh, during January uh, to December 2017, hospital laboratory in Wisconsin identified a cluster of seven isolates that tested positive, po- positive, positive for rapidly growing non tuberculosis mycobacterium. Um, and this was associated uh, my, uh, mycobacterium uh, porcinum, which is associated with infections of the respiratory tract, bloodstream. Um, surgical sites and soft tissue. All clinical isolates were obtained from respiratory cultures. No associated clinical infections were reported because M. porcinium is rarely encountered. A concern of these isolates represented laboratory contamination was raised. And the hospital infection prevention team began, began an internal investigation. During this time, the hospital's infection prevention team and Wisconsin State Laboratory of Hygiene investigated possible um, infection control breaches, all uh, specimens were submitted for acid fast bacterial culture were routed directly to uh, the uh, Wisconsin State Laboratory of Hygiene for testing. And anyway, blah, blah, blah. Um, because non-tuberculosis mycobacterium are found in water and M. porcinium in particular has, recovered from, has been recovered from tap water, the investigation included test and water samples from ice machines, water dispensers, and hand-washing sinks in intensive care units during the week of April 23rd. 
It was this pathogen was subsequently identified during April 30th to May 3rd in samples obtained from two ice machines and one water dispenser. So this one's it's really kind of fascinating because it's it's a are two things come up for me on this. Um, One is our our water systems are built. I think there's a there's a myth out there that if water is coming from a, a tap in our water system, that that water is sterile, that it, it doesn't contain any sort of uh, you know microbiological contamination, and that's that's not really the case. What 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 happens in our in our fantastic water system, and that's not said uh, at all through with any any sort of sar- sarcasm. Uh, what happens is is we're really trying to target specific pathogens that we know have caused uh, the most amount of illness, and and there is chlorination and filtering and testing, and a really, um, a, a, in general, robust set of 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 guidelines and infrastructure to to manage it. But in um, you know in situations. Um, you know, I would say right across the U.S. and Canada and in in other well-developed countries, it's not to say that we have sterile water. It's that we're we're doing our best to reduce risk. And here's a really interesting, you know, pathogen that comes through that ends up leading to these seven seven illnesses. Uh, be, because wait wait, wait. No, oh, no 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 no. It's, sorry, it's a it's a pseudo outbreak. Pseudo outbreak. Yes. Sorry. And you and you missed a really important oh, sentence. Thank you. Sorry. Okay. A, the last sentence in the first paragraph, a retrospective chart review demonstrated that none of the isolates were associated with a clinical infection. Other infections accounted for all patients' illnesses. Oh, oh you're right. I did miss this. So, so the, and this is, and I, and I, and my, so my tweet was, um, when is an outbreak not an outbreak when it's a pseudo outbreak? And so I read the article very carefully to try to figure out why it was a pseudo outbreak. Okay. And so it was a pseudo outbreak because this organism was isolated from all the patient samples. But n- this organism was not causing the illness. It was a cross-contamination event from the water source. Oh. So these people were all sick from something else. But what showed up as the signal in the, in the testing was this organism. But it was only but but it just happened to outgrow or 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 become be, become you know be, be made manifest you know detected in all those samples, um, just because we're you know the, the testing systems look for mycobacterium right, but it oh. wasn't actually causing any of the illnesses. Oh oh okay well then that, this explains another sentence in <laughs> in the last paragraph where its tap water was used during respiratory specimen collection at the Wisconsin facility and might have contaminated patient specimens. Exactly. So, yeah. Oh wow. That's so so don't so don't use non sterile tap water if you're trying to collect a sample for microbiological purposes. Now it might it might work fine most of the time, huh. but if you have and this is and obviously this was not a good thing like like you shouldn't have mycobacterium bacterium contaminating um, uh, ice machines and 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 hand wash sinks and water dispensers right um, but you know so you should you should take care of that especially in a hospital where you have immuno uh, compromised people there so yeah right 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 but but also but I, I mean to me what I what I took away from it was that that we yeah we we all we can never look at that top water as it's you know it's never zero risk it's not sterile even even if it was sterile, it wouldn't be zero risk. But we're not at a situation in any of our best uh, best available science to manage that water. 
things are going to exist in that water system and they may then come through that water system and get into um, you know, ice machines that, that have a reservoir that may not be clean and sanitized or in biofilms in, in taps uh, or in water lines. So it's, it's really like, the, you know, I, didn't, I, I totally missed that, that pseudo outbreak aspect of it. But, but I saw it as, yeah, tap, tap water, water system water is, is phenomenal, right? It's great, uh, but it's not, it's not sterile. Right. And, and, and yeah, you should just assume that water coming out of a tap is probably safe. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, but I mean, but maybe not. Right. I mean, I, I don't know. I've been watching the news carefully. I'm not sure if we've got to infrastructure week yet. Oh, it's coming. Part of, part, okay. But part of that infrastructure, I think it's coming on Tuesday. It's coming on Tuesday. <laughs> um, uh, I think, I think uh, part of the problem with the infrastructure in this country is our aging water systems, right? Which in some cases might be a hundred years old and, and, and we need to put money into fixing them. And that's just the water distribution systems within a municipality, right? Not even talking about within, within a hospital. So, yeah. So anyway, it was, I, I'm glad that we talked about this. Yeah, yeah, no, that's good. Good. Okay. So one other thing from MMWR and after episode 200 recorded, we had a couple of conversations with folks um, who were at the um, the RRT meeting, and w- and one of the the things that and I won't I won't out the individual um, at all, but it was it was someone who who works uh, at a federal agency. One of the things that uh, that he mentioned was, as we investigate outbreaks, our definition of outbreaks is is really changing. Right, whole genome sequencing is is really changing things. And and so he highlighted um, the article that um, that I just sent you, Don, in the in our chat that we'll link to in, in show notes. Multi-state outbreak of salmonella infections linked to raw turkey products, United States, 2017 to 2019. So by our current definitions and how we look at, at outbreaks, and all if you're if you're following along at home and you're looking at this um, at this. Uh, this uh, uh, article from MMWR, go down to figure one, where illnesses were first identified uh, right around Thanksgiving in November 2017, and they carried through until March 2019. And in over this 18-month period, there's always a few of these salmonella um, reading illnesses that are popping up and, and, and it's associated with Turkey and, um, it, it, it's just long and long and long. And there's a huge spike that, that pops up in February, 2019, which is really probably the tip, the tipping point for this, for this outbreak. But, but the question that, that this individual raised that I wanted to talk about more with you is, is this one outbreak or is this, and how do we parse, parse out if it is one outbreak it's there's some sort of background low level of salmonella contamination that that comes through um you know the that comes through turkey products that are that as we're trying to um trying to solve this or trying to fix it the the actual investigation leads to a, a much larger problem or a much larger question which is and I'll, I'll highlight this in the product testing and laboratory investigation part of the the article the outbreak strain was identified in 178 samples of raw turkey products from 24 slaughter and 14 processing establishments in 21 different states. That's not how we usually look at outbreaks, right, Don? 
Like that's not that's not. A, in fact, I would go so far as to say that's not an outbreak. Right. Right. But our that's definition. Just, that's just. Those are just. That's just sporadic, uh, widespread sporadic co- contamination. But with a very similar. Um, so uh, you know a okay an indistinguishable PFGE pattern. Um, a, for it. So so in our current definition um, of what an outbreak looks like now, this is, this is a real issue, right? So if we say, okay, uh, indistinguishable PFGE pattern means that there's a, a, a common source for it, but that common source is across 50, where, you know, going, 24 slaughterhouses and 14 processing establishments in 21 States. I'd have a tough time believing that those 21 States are, you know, there's one common Turkey production source, like Turkey raising livestock source. And and I live in a state that raises a lot of turkeys. It's probably not one farm in North Carolina. Is it a feed issue um, that that's sourcing this? And then, then really, if it is, are we really looking at one outbreak or this multiple outbreaks or is it m- multiple source sporadic infections? Anyway, the, the point is how we, how we, this is not, this doesn't look like, an outbreak that we would have seen in the 1970s where the source was, uh, you know, the, the pathogen was Clostridium perfringens and the source was a caterer at a holiday party. And, and the, the cause of it was, um, you know, improper time temperature control, right? Like this, this is a much more complicated system. And I think that it's giving, I think it is difficult for for us, even when we're close to it, to to start thinking about like, well, what do we do? Okay, if we change the outbreak of uh, the definition of an outbreak, what do we change it to, and how do we account for this? And 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 ultimately, what I'm about is what and what you're about as well. Well, what do we do about it? Right? Like, how do we how do we fix it? How do we limit? How do we reduce risk for it? Because this is this is a big it's a big problem. Anyway, having that conversation, that brief conversation, made me go back and look at this this MMWR to really get a grasp of what CDC is is looking at and 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 you know and and USDA um uh it, it's it's really difficult and then what do you what do you do so i want to i'm going to let you respond to a bunch of this in, in a second but what do you do from an outbreak communication standpoint right like like we've made the the argument lots of times that we need to talk when you know something you got to talk about it and, and in fact this came up in in episode 200 during our question and answer period what do you share? Well, this puts a really like this, this puts a challenge on a risk communication because what do we say? Well, in 2017, we saw some illnesses and we think it's from Turkey. And then we saw some more illnesses that we think it's also from Turkey and it's from lots of different places. So, so don't, what's, what is risk communication? Kind of, and, and I'll over, oversimplify it. And this is something that, that probably is worth us having. We should probably reach out to, um, to Bill Hallman at some point to have him. Uh, be a guest on the show to ask this question. It's like, well, how do you, how do you craft a risk communication message about an outbreak that you identified um, in, in 2018 that stretched back to 2017 that didn't really end until 2019? Do you just keep updating people about this outbreak? What do you say? I don't know. Anyway, well, what do you think? And I, well, and I almost think we need a different word than outbreak, right? Because I, I would, and again, I'm not an epidemiologist, right? But my opinion, and it's only my opinion, is that this is not an outbreak, right? Th- this has 
some of the features of an outbreak, but really there's something else going on, and we need to learn more about why um, uh, why that there were that, why this particular organism ended up in 178 raw turkey products from 24 slaughter establishments and 14 processing establishments in 21 states. Right? What's the root cause? Is it the feed? Is it a breeder flock? I mean, what's going on? that caused this. And then the other question, and I was doing a little bit of Googling to see if I could find something that would, that would point us in the right direction. And I ended up not really finding anything, but, but there was a recent article that came across my, my, uh, field of view on, uh, pulse field gel electrophoresis, right? PFGE and whether it's really a good discriminatory tool or not. And so now that they have these, um, you know, all of these isolates, it would be really interesting to put them all through whole genome yeah. or next generation sequencing, because I suspect that is going to give you a different picture, right? So, so PFGE revolutionized food safety, but it's a pretty blunt instrument, right? It's a way of, of, of basically chopping up the molecular material. And again, this is, you know, I'm not a molecular biologist, right? But, but my understanding is it's a way of chopping up the, the molecular material and running it through gel electrophoresis and looking for patterns. But, but those patterns are dependent upon, um, where you choose to, 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 to chop up that genetic material. Right. And so really a much more, a better way is to, is to sequence the entire genome or most of the entire genome and then, and then look for similarities and differences. That's a much, much better, more, more fine resolution tool. And so I, I, I think if you did next generation sequencing on on all of these isolates, you might have a very different. And then you and you, you sort of align that with with uh, establishments and and cases and states and and whatnot. You might see a very different picture. And and so, um, yeah, that's so so you know things things might cluster one way with one technique and cluster a different way with a different technique. So yeah, I, that's, yeah. that's my two cents. Agreed. And I, and I think that that's the the you know my. What, where I was also thinking here is it, what's missing is there's nothing in this MMW report that talks about whole genome sequencing, which is kind of different from many of the MMWR reports that we've seen over the last five or six years, four or five years, I guess, right? So so the fact that that hasn't been it, – it's just like missing – um, in here, right? I don't see any. I just Googled WGS. It's not, or you know, search that page. Doesn't say anything about it. Uh, my, my, my hope or, or thought is that that next generation work is is going to get continue and 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 we would see it um, uh, eventually. The I, I agree. Like even here, um, it, uh, the it's something that's in the discussion that that highlights that maybe new definition of an outbreak is. It is in the third paragraph. Because contamination was widespread, interventions need to uh, – oh, maybe that's not the right – never mind. Uh, that, I had a really good thing that I was going to talk about here. Um, basically – Well, while, while you do that, I just want to – I did find the article um, that I was thinking of, and, and I was pretty sure it was from Ed Dudley's lab at Penn State, and, and it was. Um, and it's an article that was published in March of 2019 uh, from the journal Microbiology, um, and it's basically doing just what I'm asking for here. It's it, the, the title of the article is Retrospective Whole Genome Sequencing Analysis Distinguished PFGE and Drug Resistance Matched Retail Meat and Clinical Salmonella Isolates. Huh. And so this this is the kind of a, approach that we need uh, where we, we have these 
uh, uh, strains that have already been um, analyzed in one way, and we analyze it by a different way, and then we look to see, you know, what what eventually results. And so this has got uh, Ed Dudley uh, is the senior author, and then we've also got folks from Pennsylvania Department of Health and FDA CIFSAN, as well as the uh, E. coli Reference Center, uh, also at Penn State. So so good 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 stuff from from good researchers, uh, getting us where we need to be with this. Right, right, right. I, yeah, and that 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 that's cool. And I want to come back to frozen vegetables in a second on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the so I found the part that I thought was really nice in the discussion. It says although previous multi-state outbreaks of Salmonella Heidelberg associated with ground turkey and Salmonella hadar infections associated with turkey burgers have occurred, a noteworthy aspect of this particular outbreak was that no single common source or supplier was identified as the cause of the illness. For this investigation, it was necess- necessary to determine whether illnesses were part of an outbreak or sporadic infections with a common strain of salmonella. The evidence suggested that an outbreak occurred and that the turkey products were the source for two reasons. First, there was a strong epidemiological association um, between illness and exposed to turkey. Second, laboratory evidence indicated the outbreak strain was present in turkey facilities uh, around the country and in live turkeys. So so the the important part, I think, of of trying to solve this is the next sentence, which is the outbreak strain might have been introduced into the turkey supply chain and subsequently spread to many establishments and products throughout the industry before isolates from the Minnesota investigation were identified and the number of isolates were enough to initiate a multi-state investigation. And and so so it it really, um, I, I guess, shows with good justification and, and assumption, why why CDC says this is an outbreak, and and I think the argument on the other side can be made equally as as much without figuring out what that common source of what might have introduced this into the su- supply chain um, is. It's really difficult to know whether it's sporadic and and background or or not. The thing that I think is most interesting before we jump off of this one is again going to figure one where the one week in February 2019, there are 50 illnesses. Something special happened that week. Right. No other week has any more than 20. And most weeks, if you go back to early in this in this outbreak, are at the one, two, or three. So there's something like, yep, there's something in the background, something in the background. It's moving, moving, moving. Oh, it's growing a little bit. Boom. Right in February 2019, a whole bunch. And then the somewhat crazy part is that then it goes away, right? Like then nothing, it's, it's not there anymore. So what, you know, there was a, there was a, there were recalls, there were products that were removed from, um, from distribution from the supply chain, but we haven't seen anything post March, 2019 that indicates that this outbreak is still going on. So what changed? Right and yeah, clear, clearly something changed. Maybe maybe what changed in November of uh, 2018 is people were eating more turkey, right? Like so, there's a little sure. bit of a blip uh, in November, which you would expect, right? Kind of maybe peaking in uh, uh, late October for Canadian Thanksgiving, right? Right. right. Yes. Um, uh, and and then yeah, and something very very special happening on February 18th. So um oh, and I just want there was a, I wanted to make sure that I was I was correctly uh, paraphrasing this the article from from Ed's lab. And and I just want to read one sentence from the summary. So 
It says, in summary, this study demonstrated that historic retail meat and human salmonella isolates collected through routine monitoring that are indistinguishable by conventional methods, PFGE and AST, could be different strains, further underscoring the power of uh, WGS, whole genome sequencing. So so I think that, I mean, obviously we're moving the right direction um, in terms of uh, figuring out what's going on and, and being able to parse this finer and finer. And that's, that's again, that's what, what the Ed's paper showed. And we need more of this. And I would really be interested in reading uh, a retrospective analysis of these strains uh, to see what it might tell us. I mean, we, we may never get that, but, you know, that, that still, I think, would be quite interesting. Yeah, yeah no, totally. Well, and, and so this this conversation, I like I'm I, I like furthering this this discussion, especially with with the stuff that, that Ed's doing. And come back to something that you and I have talked about a, a few times on the podcast, and we've talked about it with um, with our friends at, at AFI and the frozen food world. But but the other side of the limitation of that next generation whole genome sequencing is this outbreak that happened in 2016, um, multi-state outbreak of listeriosis linked to frozen vegetables, final update. And this investigation, so uh, nine cases, uh, nine hospitalizations, three deaths, Ser- serious outbreak. Um, the uh, outbreak started in the first case was September 2013. Last case identified was May 2016. So three years, no more than one case per month. So so there's some very small exposure in in, in the background and the and, and but. But the the difference here is is the pathogen is is different, right? So listeria right. versus salmonella, the um, the, you know, the dose response uh, aspect of it is is very different. And, and but what what I think is really uh, you know I just want to highlight the investigation uh, piece here. So um, epidemiologic and laboratory evidence. Uh, indicated that frozen vegetables produced by CRF Frozen Foods of Pasco, Washington, and sold under various brand names were likely the source of the uh, of, of illness in this outbreak. And why? Why is that? Well, in 2016, um, the epidemiology showed that three of the four people reported buying and eating frozen vegetables. Um, two reported organic by nature fr- brand frozen vegetables. Third ill person reported eating. Um, o organic brand frozen vegetables, both organic by nature and O organic, are produced by CRF frozen foods. Okay, good epidemiology. During the same time, as part of the routine product sampling program, Ohio Department of Agriculture collected packages of frozen frozen vegetables from a retail location um, and isolated listeria from True Goodness by Meyer. Um, both products oh, and, and um, True Goodness Meyer brand um, frozen organic white sweet corn, sweet cut corn, and True Goodness by Meyer frozen organic petite green peas. Both products produced by CRF Frozen Foods. Okay, another piece of the of the puzzle. Whole genome sequencing showed listeria isolate from the frozen corn was closely related to the eight bacterial isolates from the from the ill people. Great, like not great for for uh, CRF Frozen Foods, but great. We have a, a a very close connection. But things get really weird for me in the next paragraph, which says, 
Also, FDA collected environmental samples from a different company, Oregon Potato Company, located also geographically in Pasco, Washington, and isolated listeria from these samples. WGS showed the listeria found in these environmental samples was closely related genetically to the eight isolates from the ill people in the outbreak. Based on this information, Oregon Potato Company voluntarily recalled their um, onion products made in their facility, which led to multiple recalls of a whole bunch of other products. So CRF Frozen Foods and the Oregon Potato Company had products that both had this, you know, and, and I don't, I won't say the same whole genome sequence. I'll use the actual, um, words that, that are used in, in, uh, CDC's report, which is they were closely related genetically. Right. And so, so here, you know, if, if we contrast what we we're talking about with the salmonella outbreak, a really large quote outbreak from multiple sources, are we looking at a same same situation or a similar situation where now we have a very small outbreak, but two sources that may be the the source? Maybe there are ult, uh, ultimately other sources out out there, but two sources that were identified during during this outbreak. And and to me, you know, I I would assume that this will get debated or has been already debated in in a civil lawsuit, and and who knows what what comes out of that. That may not really answer the question of you know public health wise what are we looking at here right like is it, are we is whole genome sequencing muddying this outbreak by saying you know what maybe we're, if we get back to two sources maybe it's a water issue maybe it's maybe we're talking about maybe it is one source that um, the uh, uh, organic pe- petite green peas and the organic white sweet cut corn and the uh, Oregon Potato Company. Uh, you know, whatever wholesale onion products. Maybe those three things are all grown in adjacent fields, or maybe they're all grown by the same producer. Maybe they're harvested, but using the same um, uh, equipment. I don't know. But but is are we? Does it, it does whole genome sequence help or, or hurt us here in trying to ultimately get to the answer? Well, so a cu- couple of comments. So so first of all, I will say this in my opinion, and again, it's only my opinion. I'm not an epidemiologist, right? This is an outbreak, whereas the other one, I'm not convinced it was an outbreak. I would say most definitely this was an outbreak. And certainly what, what happened in the, the chicken products on uh, that day in February is, is, an, is an outbreak, right, that huge spike. But, but I, I, I would say this particular listeria situation is most, most definitely an outbreak. Um, and I, I thought you were going to say uh, debated in lawsuits. I suspect I, I would love to have been a fly on the wall for the public health uh, conference calls on this because oh, I, you can you yeah. be damn sure that folks at, at the various agencies were debating this before they went public, right? About, yeah. well, is this really what's going on? Um, uh, the other thing I want to, I want to offer a different opinion. You talked, you kept talking about sources. Well, as far as I know, if, as I read this article, the only source is the um, CRF frozen foods in Pasco, Washington, right? The, um, the Oregon potato company was not a source of the outbreak Right. It was a source of the isolate of a, of a, a genetically closely genetically related isolate. But as, as I read this, there is no evidence at all that the Oregon Potato Company product caused illnesses. So right? it. Yeah. yeah. But, okay, but it's a recall. Well, okay. but yeah, but I think where I, I, I agree with you if we look at the the text of the article where where, where I'll highlight uh, counselor um, 
uh, as as being something that that maybe maybe what's missing here is the is the paragraph that says this outbreak was identified in March 2016. State and local health departments attempted to interview attempted to interview all the ill people, family member or caregiver of the ill person about the foods that the ill person may have eaten in the month before the illness began. The epidemiological link of four of the nine ill people were interviewed. Well, that means we've got five that weren't. Right. Oh, good point. Good point. Right? Yeah. So, so four of the nine, three of those, so three of the nine reported buying and eating frozen vegetables in the month before the illness began. And only two reported CRF foods, organic by nature, brand frozen vegetables. So I would, I would argue that, that yes, based on our, our avail, available information here, yeah, there's, there's a line here between two likely, and this is only based on what people recall, um, uh, you know, the third old person reported eating organic food, vegetable. Anyway, we, we've got, let's say three, um, of, of the nine have that they remember eating this type of brand, but do we, it, we're always like, um, uh, going on someone else's, um, memory. And, and this is only the type of stuff that end up to them through the things that they purchased. I would say that we're often, I mean, I don't know, and you don't know, um, when when we eat out at a restaurant, if we were to eat something that had a frozen food product in it, what that source was. And it was source meaning what the what the company who made it was, right? So there's I think there's bunch a bunch of missing information. The information that we do have, I can definitely see drawing the conclusion from this, right? Right. And well, in terms of missing information, we know that the ill people range from 56 to 91 years old with a median age of 76. So they're definitely skewing older, which means they're probably immunocompromised. What I would some missing information that I'd like to know is how did they prepare these foods? Absolutely. Right? Did they do them in a microwave? Um, were they maybe they, they don't like their uh, their frozen foods too hot? <laughs> So they didn't really heat them very long. Um, did they uh, uh, heat them from frozen and then keep them in the refrigerator for a while, periodically reheating them, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So and then the other thing, that point that I have to make because I always make this point is if only we had a tolerance for low levels of listeria and this company had been testing their finished product because yep. Yep. there there are there are um, uh, uh a small number of people who were made sick, I, I would bet any amount of money, Ben, that there's a huge number of people that were exposed, right? Like, again, let's let's imagine a Bluebell ice cream type scenario where we uh, get all of this recalled product and we subject all of it to testing for listeria. I've got to imagine that there were many, many, many shipments of product from this facility or even these facilities that were contaminated with listeria at some level, yep. right? Some yep. some yep. low level, some high level. It varied for years, uh, you right? know. Uh, for for yes, for absolutely four years. And so, if only that company had had some incentive to actually be testing finished product, they might have found it. They might have done a root cause investigation. They might have figured out where in their facility this listeria was being harbored and they could have, um, you know, uh, done some sort of in-depth cleaning, uh, to remove it. So, uh, you know, there's again that, but that's just, you know, that's just my, my, my opinion about what FDA should do. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and also, I mean, I'll, uh, you're, you're talking about it from, 
what that facility should do within theirs, assuming that that they had that that they were able to find it at at some point there. And I think that there's another story to tell there, which is seasonally, is it related to some sort of product or something in the environment in Pasco, Washington? Because maybe we only see this isolate in in March or whatever, right? Like, I mean, and, and it and it sits in our. It only comes through our facility um, at a specific temporal point because of transition, because of uh, end of the season, or because of water source or whatever it is. And you know, similar, you know, uh, thinking about some stuff that we talked about in episode two hundred, uh, comparing that to what what our situation is with Romaine, where where maybe there's something that I can do as a purchasing facility to to stop the or or reduce the the likelihood of exposure of, of consumers by changing what I do on the supplier side of things or changing what I do and require in the good agricultural practices on the, on the production. Because to me, this, you know, again, this is me, not, I'm a, you know, full disclosure on, on these. I, I do, you know, and you and I every once in a while do get involved in, um, in, in giving some sort of expert witness stuff. This is not something I know about, but I would bet in this, in this case, the CRF foods and, um, and, uh, our Oregon potato company. But my guess is it's a lot harder for CRF foods to argue that it wasn't them when the MMWR report says it was likely them and that the Oregon, and then the Oregon potato company, if, if CRF foods is like, well, let's point at them with this. It's a lot easier for that Oregon potato company to say, look, CDC said it was you, even though we found this, this isolate in our products, it's not, we don't have any reason to think that it was, um, linked to our, these specific illnesses were linked to our, our particular product. And that's really, to me, that's really confusing, right? Like that, that, that is, um, it, it's it's confusing on how to move how to move forward to 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 uh, I guess further food safety in in, in this area uh, and and I we haven't really done a deep dive in this in this outbreak like like we have today but I hope that we can sort of retrospectively look at this use it as a case study and say okay it, it really comes down to how do we how do we define outbreaks? How do we investigate them? And what do we need to, um, wh- what do we do to, to, to move forward and, and help it help, help, help define it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good comments. <sighs> so there, so there you go. Um, so, so anyway, that was, those were a couple of things that, that weren't in feedback, uh, just stuff that came up from uh, on episode 200 when we were there. Uh, we do have some stuff that, that is in feedback that we should probably talk about. Let's do it. All right. Um, so let's start with, uh, I don't know where this, oh, no, I do know where it, where it came from. Uh, uh, so, so, uh, l- let's say deep onion, but I believe it's actually deep stack, uh, sent us this, <laughs> uh, the aforementioned deep stack sent us something from the onion, uh, which was, <laughs> which is one of the, one of the great, uh, articles, uh, that came out around Thanksgiving, uh, uh from news in brief, uh, the article is entitled health department gives Tyson plant a D grade after discovering raw chicken contaminating e- nearly every surface surface. Uh, so, uh, the, uh, uh, condemning the processed poultry giant's blatant disregard for well-established food safety practices, investigators from the Office 
of the Pettis County Health Board rated Tyson's Sedalia Center processing plant this week a borderline D discovering upon discovering vast amounts of raw chicken contaminating nearly every working surface. Quote, I can't imagine what led these poultry <laughs> processors to think that a factory full of recently slaughtered chickens constituted a safe food service environment, said Health Inspector Casey Franklin, noting that the plant's annual inspection revealed chicken carcasses on moving conveyor belts, goblets of chicken flesh tumbling down chutes, and chicken limbs being sealed inside supposedly uh, food-safe packaging. In no, quote, in no case was any of this chicken leaf properly cooked. It's shocking to think Tyson was going to ship that out to supermarkets across the country. Um, and then so the, yeah. this, is, this is a brilliant piece of writing by it's The great. Onion because it, it points out just how kind of weird we are about food safety, right? Like, like, yeah, th- this is what it's like inside a chicken processing plant. Um, uh, and it's not the standard that we would hold a restaurant to, right? Um, it's a, right. Dif- a different standard. But for, uh, as I like to call them, Ben, normal people um, who, who don't maybe live and breathe this food safety stuff the way we do, um, you know, it actually reads – as kind of legit, right? Yep. Uh, so it, anyway, it's a, it's a, it's a very clever piece of writing, uh, from the onion and, and, uh, thanks to, uh, deep stack for, uh, for sending it to us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and this is, you know, you and I are, are close to this all the time. Um, even when I think about microbiologists, um, that, that may not work closely with the, with the industry, you know, just more, more traditional, food food safety or food microbiologists that are they're in the world of whole genome sequencing and and trying to to look at isolates and and connect them together the the nuances of the regulatory system it, it is it is complicated right like like even looking at this um it, it, the the nod to us i think here is the fact that it's the local um you know the Pettis County Health Board right which would not be Right, you know, that's not a place that would even step inside of a chicken plant because the, we don't hold <laughs> right, right, right. We, we don't hold uh, chicken processing uh, plants to to the same to the food code, uh, which is what the Pettis County Health Board, uh, in, in my in my guesstimation, um, would would be doing. But if you try and uh, we we use an example. Um, when we teach shared use facility users, so so thinking about uh, a small business who may want to make salsa. And if they want to make salsa that they're going to serve, that they're going to sell packaged and refrigerated versus salsa that they're going to serve in a shelf stable can, uh, can or as a canned item or, or as a shelf stable bottle item or salsa with the exact same recipe that they're going to serve as a side item on, at a food truck using a shared use facility here in our state, that's three different regulations. It's the same recipe, right? It's right. still it's still salsa. How they want to serve it is going to dictate who's going to look at it, uh, and that I, I think blows minds of of some folks that aren't close to it every day. And it seems like, well, how could it be? How could how I package it matter if I'm still just making salsa that's diced up tomatoes with some lemon juice and and cilantro and and onions and 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 not only I get that maybe packaging it different should mean different some different food safety um, things to worry about in food safety but it it surely shouldn't mean a totally different regulatory regime and and in fact it does <laughs> exactly yeah so um, yeah all right so what's uh, what do we got next? 
Well, um, you want to talk about uh, possum drops in farmers markets? Yes, yes, I do. Yes, I okay. do. So, um, so we we talked about on I think it was one ninety nine. Uh, uh, we talked about um, possum drops. And um, uh, listener uh, uh, Billy, uh, who says, please share all details freely, says, uh, thanks, as always, for what y'all do, because uh, Billy's from the South, and that's the way he talks. Um, uh, he said, uh, no, no need to share this on the air, too late, uh, but I was at the last Possum Drop, and it was the sweetest, most family-friendly New Year's Eve event I've ever been to. I can't speak to the Possum's mental state after being released, but I hope it's found its way home safely with no injuries and a crazy story to tell its possum pals. I'm a vegetarian, and I was honestly more offended by the lackluster drag show than the treatment of the possum. <laughs> awesome. Uh, this is the greatest. So, um, but Billy started something really interesting. And so he says, uh, uh, going back to the, the the content part of his message, uh, thanks for what you do. Oh, thank you for listening, Billy. This study, and he links to a study from, uh, we links to an article from Food Safety News, um, recently came up in some conversations. Um, and basically, it ha- it's around farmers markets. And so it's interesting. He linked to an article from Food Safety News. But the Food Safety News article is a little bit weird. It refers to a November uh, 2018 publication in Food Protection Trends that we will link to, uh, which is an article uh, out of uh, Kathy Cutter's lab um, entitled uh, Comprehensive Needs Assessment of Food Safety Practices at Farmers Market Vendors in Pennsylvania Using Direct Concealed Observations, Self-Reported Surveys, and State Sanitary Surveys, State Sanitary Sanitarian surveys. So, so really a very, very interesting article, um, and a lot of stuff has been coming out of Kathy's lab on farmers markets. But the the actual microbiological testing that the food safety news articles reference is not the article that I just mentioned. It's from a different article published in a different journal, okay, um, uh, the Journal of Food Protection, um, which has, uh, as Kathy Cutter as an author, uh, this one has Ed Dudley, who we mentioned earlier in the show, uh, as a, the second author. And again, and the lead author is somebody by the name of Joshua Scheinberg, yep. who is a, a PhD student in Kathy's lab, I, I'm imagining. And this particular article is entitled Prevalence and phylogenetic characterization of E. coli and hygienic indicator bacteria isolated from leafy green produce, beef, and pork obtained from farmers markets in Pennsylvania. And so that that's the article that contains the, the microbiological uh, information. But what I said is, well, geez, you know, I know Kathy Cutter's been publishing a ton of stuff on this. Let's just email Kathy and, and she'll give us the straight scoop. And indeed she did. Um, she says, we're working, and this is just reading from her email, um, we're working on submission of the last chapter. Um, uh, uh, from uh, uh, Joshua's uh, doctoral dissertation. Uh, in the absence of the manuscript, you can access the entire dissertation online, and we will definitely link to uh, to Josh's dissertation here. Um, and the, the, the title of the dissertation is A Comprehensive Food Safety Assessment of Farmers Markets in Pennsylvania. And this is, this is so important uh, right now because, as we've talked before on the podcast, New Jersey is in the midst of revising their state food code. Farmers markets are not going to be explicitly included, but we're probably looking for advice for farmers markets. Um, I know you guys have farmers markets there in North Carolina and probably are ahead of what we're doing in New Jersey in terms of regulation and, and advice and things like that. So, so lots of, lots of good stuff happening with, with farmers markets. And then, um, 
Oh, and Kathy says, uh, we have not conducted another microbiological survey, but there are several other researchers have conducted studies of food at farmer's markets as well as other food safety practices. And she provides an incredible list of three, four, five, six, must be a dozen articles here. Uh, I don't know if we need to link to all of them in the show notes, but there's, there's a ton of stuff out there on microbiological quality at farmer's markets. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And, it, and it's an area that um, that I know Kathy's done, done a lot of work in. I'll, I'll put shout outs to a couple other folks. Uh, Renee Boyer of Virginia Tech has, has led a couple of projects, NIFA projects that I've been part of. Um, and Judy Harrison, who recently retired from the University of Georgia, wrote a, wrote a book um, uh, that I submitted, uh, or that I, not submitted, I was part of with a, with a couple of chapters. Um, they were submitted and published. Um, and, and so it's, it is still an area that, that I think is under, it's underserved from a research standpoint. And I would, I would put, um, Renee and, and Kathy, obviously in her, her groups ahead of everyone else on this, because we don't really have a good sense of what happens at not only farmers markets themselves, but the suppliers to farmers markets, because they are, um, in certain cases outside of the regulatory world because of exemptions. And, and so, I, um, I, I, and I, I'm, I'm really, I'm really like, I'm really careful in the same way that we, you and I have talked about raw milk and other things in the past. I think historically it was easy for me and, and many others to say, oh, well, because it's not regulated, it's worse, right? Because it, it's going to be riskier. I'm, I'm more, um, I'm, I'm more careful about that over the last decade or so, where really what I think is we just don't have a lot of great data to know whether it's any riskier or less risky. And there isn't the infrastructure there always to support change, but it doesn't mean that it's any safer or less safe. We just, we just don't know. And, and we, there's a lot about the regulated industry that also we don't know about. And so, so I, I, I think that, um, I've been, I've been happy with, how resources have gone to farmers market vendors and managers about getting in step with the with with the guidance that would put them close to what is required in FISMA regulations or or elsewhere. Um, but I still think that it's an underserved area. I, I think it's difficult for um, for folks like me and you to to get resources from federal agencies to develop and deliver materials for farmers market vendors and, and farmers markets in general. I think it's a lot easier for the, for us to get funds for the, for the larger uh, production um, hubs and the larger producers because they, they, you know, there are, there may be less of them, but they make up the vast majority of what's consumed. And, and that's, I, I think it's a difficult, it's a difficult position. So, so, I mean, shout out to, to Kathy and, and Renee and, and Judy for all the great work that they've done. Um, but, but also for, for those who are in, I mean, no one, I don't think there's anyone at NIFA left. So no one who, at, who was at NIFA could, could be listening to the podcast, but maybe in the future, the future lings, um, if they're, re, if they are at NIFA and they're going back into the archive of, uh, of what we do at, at food safety talk for whatever reason, um, I, you know, I think we need to put more, we've got to have more resources to these underserved areas because there's just not a lot of, there's not industry money to support it because the, it, there's no, there's not a, a, a strong trade group association. There's not a, you know, it's, I think 
I think for us to to help move the frozen food industry forward, there's a lot of amazing infrastructure that AFI has that they can um, they can corral and and create consortiums of their member companies. Well, try to create a consortium at the same magnitude of farmers market vendors. You need a consortium of like fifty thousand vendors. It's just not realistic. Well, and and the other complicating factor, which I didn't really, it was really driven home to me at a recent meeting of the New Jersey Chapter Twenty Four Farmers Market Subcommittee, which is like, you you can we can say the words farmers market, but that means so many things, right? That ranges in New Jersey at least from a brick and mortar location that is in business. Yeah. Seven days a week versus a thing in a place in a field where people come um, once a week during the season to sell produce from their farms, right? And then, and 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 again, it's a dynamic thing where one, yeah, the guy, the farmer brings, uh, you know, leafy greens to sell off the back of his truck, um, but then um, he talks to his buddy that's making cheese, and one day he brings some cheese. <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> how do you how do you regulate that, right? And again, the people that are managing these things, they're not like the manager of a restaurant that has serve safe training, right? Like what what degree of training do they have? Well, in in New Jersey, in many cases, zero, right? Or or it might again, if it's a if it's a brick brick and mortar facility that's in operation seven days a week, well, they might actually have a serve safe training, right? So it's it, it's such a a diverse uh, audience, right? So yeah, much, yeah, 50,000, uh, entities, but, but of, of multiple sizes and shapes and, and capabilities and, and, and it changes every week potentially. Right, right, so right, right. how do you wrap your hands around that or your head around that, um, to come up with n- not even regulations, just guidance, right? Just what are, what are best practices? Well, best practices are going to depend, right? Because on, on the whole range of things that you're doing. Right, right, right. And, and that's, it, it I mean, I think you you nailed it. Um, and this, you know, maybe maybe today's topic is all about definitions and and regulatory boxes and agencies trying to to investigate things and and how our definitions change. How do you do it when when you can't? Um, you, it, it might be so small, and it might not be something that we've even thought about uh, whether it's a food type or what that business looks like, because there's an entrepreneur who's trying some different type of type of process. And, and I don't even just mean different type of process in, um, you know, in making that cheese. But, but if we look at, like, you know, question that we've talked about briefly on the podcast in the past, where does, like, Uber Eats fit into this um, and, and delivery? And is there going to be some sort of, like, farmer's market version of I'll go, you know, a, a gig um, economy of I'll go to the farmer's market for you and pick out the best tomatoes and then bring them to you? There's another intermediary there that – that may not even we've not even thought of that's that that is adjacent or part of that farmer's market world um so yeah yeah, yeah. I, this is a i i i appreciate all the people that we know that are in agencies that have to battle with these things that are like yeah buts or we hadn't thought about this when we wrote the regulation yeah agreed um all right so uh so moving on 
So, so I, I want, I want some, uh, some hot takes, some Manon hot takes. Oh, Manon. <laughs> can, can we, can we do some Manon hot takes? Let's do Manon hot takes. So, so this comes from a friend of the podcast, uh, Manon Sharma, uh, who works at an undisclosed government agency, <laughs> <It's> <laughs> one, of, one of the few remaining government workers. Um, uh, and he says, Hey, uh, did you see this article from Forbes on food safety? I think the numbers they cite in this table deserve a deeper dive. I don't know if it's something you want to get into on the podcast. Absolutely. Manon. Um, so the, the title of the article is food safety. It's better than you think. Um, so what, what, what do you think, Ben? Um, is food safety better than we think? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think it's pretty good. It depends on what I'm thinking. Okay, so, so this we is... the safest food supply in the world. Right, man. right, right, right. So, so here's, here's a really interesting um, uh, take on food safety, hot take from, uh, from Jim Vinosky in man- manufacturing, who writes about all facets of manufacturing. Uh, that's, that's the, uh, his article yeah, Yeah, for Forbes. So, um, says, uh, now that we're in the thick of the holiday cooking season, it's a good time to reflect on the safety of the U S food supply. For some that's described by these panic thoughts, foodborne illnesses are out of control. The evil big food companies are killing us and just don't care. Um, that's certainly an impression people can get if they pay attention only to particular, if it bleeds, it leads current event headlines and the angry agendas. Some filmmakers have served up in recent years. I feel like he's subtweeting somebody there and I don't know who. Uh-huh. Uh, but it isn't just so. The statistics on foodborne illnesses have stayed fairly constant over most of the past decade, and food companies have dramatically ramped up their efforts to prevent pathogens from reaching consumers. And so he cites a stat, well, um, a, a table that comes from um, FoodNet. Um, and, and so it's the data on U.S. foodborne illnesses 2017 or 2011 through 2017. And it, he talks about out number of outbreaks, number of illnesses, number of hospitalizations, um, and and so he he kind of he gets some of it right and he gets some of it wrong, right? I, I mean, I think that's the the way that I would uh, approach this. So in his table, he talks about 801 outbreaks in 2011 and 841 in 2017, and the hospitalizations are somewhere in between um, a thousand and, and, and almost 800 and deaths are range in between, um, on the low end 16 and on the high end 45. Eh. Right. And so, so the, it's, sorry, no, it just, it's where one of these where it's like, well, you sort of get like, this is a real chart, but he's, it's not telling the whole story, right? Well, it's a real chart, um, which comes from some, uh, thing that I'm not sure what it's coming from. Well, right? he, he, pre- he prepared it. So he, he prepared it. Good, good job, Jim. Yeah. Um, and, but, and it, it's but cite your sources, please. Well, and, and so he's taking it from annual reports and the problem with taking it from the annual reports is it doesn't say this is, I, I believe if I can get to the bottom of these, these are the confirmed outbreaks for, I think it's the top six pathogens. Not the 31 uh, that we would see, or for, or 41, whatever it is that that Scanlon uses, and and again, we'll we'll link to the the, yeah. the so infamous. I, yeah. I'm, yeah. Look, I'm looking at the Scanlon paper right now. It's 31 pathogens. There's more than the 31, but the 31 are like the the main 31. And I can tell you already the number for the number of deaths for listeria. Um, the the uh, again the mean the mean number is 255 with a credible inter- interval from zero 
zero to 733. Salmonella, 378 deaths from a, with a credible interval from zero to 1,011. Right. So, uh, you know, it, so his number is 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 a bit on the low side. Uh, if you again, if you believe Scallon and realize that these are all estimates and it's 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 a squishy thing to get your your hands around, but I think his number is probably low by an order of magnitude at least. Right. Right. And and I think that's because he's he's cherry picking pathogens and 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 my my favorite one and we've linked to this in the past um i'm gonna throw it into show notes again um is the nors um website for um foodborne illness and so this has it's the national outbreak reporting system um you can you can uh in real time, use like sort of manipulate the uh, the data. So you can say, okay, these are um, outbreaks of foodborne illness. But if you only want to look at food, you can unclick water, and you can unclick animal contact, and you can unclick environmental, and you can unclick person to person, and you can unclick um, indeterminate and unknown, and you get down to um, still. Uh, as I do that in in real time, mm-hmm. somewhere in that eight hundred. Uh, outbreaks a year uh, going oh, back so to sorry so maybe yeah. he, maybe he pulled something from this Norse I, uh, portal that's my that's my guess now they, so so these are with the current filters only 392 deaths right so so but if we again this is a definition issue right so if I look at person to person if I just click those on here, these secondary cases, right? So the food, let's, let's take an example of the food industry makes a food and people get sick from that, from that food. And then that one of the people that get sick from that food then passes it because they're a food handler, or they just happen to be in the same home as someone else. And they pass it someone, you know, to someone else. Well, all of a sudden my, my, my deaths go up to 1200 instead of the, um, 392 just from secondary infections. And then if I click, let's take water out, let's take animal contact, let's take environment out. But if we go to indeterminate unknown, which which these are all foodborne illnesses, I'm, now I'm up to 1,300 deaths and oh, 1.1 uh, million illnesses. And I'm out, I'm investigating, and this is, I think, a more um, useful number. Uh, the CDC is investigating about 4,000 outbreaks per year. Or not the CDC, the public health system are reporting that they are investigating about 4,000 outbreaks per year. Once we and, and so we know that those pathogens are coming from somewhere. These are foodborne illness pathogens. I, I, think, I think we're skipping a whole factor here by just saying these are confirmed outbreaks. And it, but it makes for a nice story for Jim Vinovsky. It will, and if you even let's 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 look at this NORS uh, uh, dashboard because it's kind of interesting. So if you go down and you look uh, in the lower left uh, lower left hand corner under primary mode, um, and you deselect person to person, what you see is that giant peak that starts at zero in two, 2008 and goes up to 25,000, um, uh, sorry, 2,500 um, by 2015. That goes away. Yeah. I think, Ben, what's causing that is we started being able to attribute things to norovirus. Absolutely. And and so it's not like we didn't have norovirus before 2008 or people just stopped washing their hands and flinging virus particles on each other. It's we just started tracking it. Right. Yep. Yep. So it's you have to. I mean, it. yeah, I mean, I. And and does the food manufacturing industry have are they part of the norovirus conversation? Absolutely. They are. 
right? And and by that, I mean, are they could they be a source of a norovirus outbreak? We've we've seen it. Are they the number one source? No. I mean, food service is, but when when you take a really slim slim uh, thin slice of looking at foodborne illness and saying how much is big food manufacturing contributing to food safety? Is it getting better or worse? Well, yeah, it's about the same, right? Sure, since 2011, and we started identifying a bunch more. I mean, if you took this back, as as we could, we can with NORS, you see a big jump in 2008, and that's because we're identifying lots of different things. Um, our system's getting getting much better. Is 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 food safer now than it was? Maybe. Are we seeing? Is it getting worse? I think it's not getting worse. Right, so I think his his hot take of is it worse? I think I can agree that it's probably not. It's probably not getting worse. Are we getting better at identifying things? Yes. Are we looking? Are we finding smaller outbreaks that have more um, widespread uh, reach? You know, more multi-state outbreaks with less people in it. Yeah, because our system is getting better. If we applied the same process to where the food industry was 20 years ago, would we see the same amount of outbreaks? Probably. I mean, I think that's – I think the argument can be made um, on, on that. I, I don't think the numbers that he is using makes the case food safety, it's better than you think. I think that what it makes the case is saying it's stagnant, we're not getting worse. <laughs> yeah. Uh, food safety, turns out it's more complicated than Jim thinks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so Ben, I don't know if you know this, but uh, J- Jim has spent decades in the Richard Fingers trenches of food manufacturing, focusing on engineering operations and management. His career has taken him from plant floors, plant floors to corporate boardrooms with companies such as Ralston Purina and General Mills, making everything from plastic to paints and foods to bourbon. Um, but what Jim fails to do is actually talk to anybody for this article that really seems to know anything about food safety, right? He talks to uh, somebody that runs a biotech company that has a has developed a new pathogen detection instrument. Oh, that's exciting. Um, we get about one of those a month. Um, and then somebody else that uh, is um, a Boston-based provider of software solutions. So, I mean, you know, Jim may be good at manufacturing or writing about manufacturing. He's kind of crap at writing about food safety, in my opinion. I, yeah, I, I agree. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna Sorry, read. Jim. No, it's. I'm gonna agree. I, I'm agree. I'm gonna read from his last paragraph because it's where I always like to go to the abstract and I like to go to the conclusions. Well, yep. Um, our ideal quote: Our ideal should always be eliminating foodborne illnesses entirely. Well, sure, but we're not gonna get there. That's my editorial. And, of course, any deaths resulting from contaminated food are tragic. Okay. Sure. Yeah, well, sure. That's my editorial. <laughs> yep. Sure. Uh, next sentence. Still, the statistics show that the U.S. food supply is extremely safe. That's a value judgment. <laughs> right? Yeah. And and I'm okay with, uh, you know, I've, I've said this on the podcast. I say this a lot in, in conversations because this is a, co- a question that comes up from journalists all the time. Is it, are we getting better or worse? Well, we eat millions of uh, servings of food a year that make us sick and we we eat billions of servings of food that don't <laughs> right so is yeah. that extremely safe i don't know i mean it's uh, it for the people that that ate food that they bought something from someone and didn't think it was going to make them sick and they're they're faced with long-term health effects i don't think they would say it's extremely safe right like that's that that was not enough it wasn't safe enough for them for the people that don't get sick 
Maybe it is extremely sad. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think I think the words of Dean Cliver, um, uh, you know, I think about this all the time. Um, the risks of not eating still outweigh the risks of eating. Right. Absolutely. So, so we need to eat. And most of the time we don't get sick. And, and, and that's great. <laughs> and that's great. And but that, we need to do better, too. We need to do better because there's still lots of times. And, and when you cherry pick and say, well, confirmed foodborne illness outbreaks, um, you know, there's only eight, only 800 a year. And so that's, you know, that's only that's just, you know, just a couple a day. That's extremely safe. <laughs> ooh, ooh, right. Ooh, when you right? that way. Right. But yeah, but, I mean, and that's, you know, you and I talked about this in, in, uh, in episode 200, a failure rate of 1% for, for a company like Jim used to work for, like uh, General Mills, that's bad, right? A fail, 1% of your, your product is contaminated. That leads to a risk of your, uh, uh, so, so we've got to be better than 1%. So what's our failure rate? Maybe it's 0.001% or whatever, whatever it is that we are, we're comfortable with as that business. Um, that the, the, the closer we get to magnitudes of, 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 you know, fractions of percentages, it's, it's better. But when you're serving billions of people a year, um, you're still going to have some exposure. Uh, and, and so, I, I mean, I th- realistically, we're never going to get to where Jim wants us to be um, of zero, zero risk, uh, or zero foodborne illnesses. We can always do better. But I think by saying, you know what, we're doing pretty good. doesn't serve us very well. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, I didn't really learn too much from reading this article. Um, yeah. And I get, you know, it's sort of, maybe it's, a, maybe it's the turns out journalism, right? You know, he wanted to try his hand at, uh, turns out journalism. So, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, anyway, so uh, but but we t- <laughs> so let's come back to uh, Manon's uh, uh, hot take. Yeah, I think the numbers they cite deserve a deeper dive. Absolutely. We took a deeper dive. Um, uh, <laughs> I would like to think reading more from Manon's email. I would like to think I'm fairly open to different points of view, even different specialities uh, to improve food safety. But if you parachute into food safety, you should have something novel or better to say and data to support it. Yeah. Yes, indeed, Dr. Sharma. Well done, sir. Um, yeah, the data cited as misleading uh, doesn't make an economic impact of the workers who don't get paid because the fields go to be dissed under. Yeah, I mean, yeah, no, it's uh, it's yeah. I, <laughs> so I, yeah, good, 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 good call, Manon. This was something that I had not seen, and, and we were delighted to talk about. So. Yeah, yeah. And I want to. I just want to talk the the data cited in this table is misleading. I, I, so the data is the data, right? Like I, I'm 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 okay with that. It's the context that's misleading. Um, for it. And, and it's the, you know, just the back of the envelope calculations that we're doing on NORS by unclicking certain things, trying to figure out where they came from to, to generate it. I, I think that part's an important part of the story, right? It's, it's not, it's, it's, it's cherry picking and, and contextual, but the data is the data. I mean, this is, this is coming from, um, CDC, it, it exists. It's just, you know, do we, um, we, we need to know more, more about it. Um, hey, so I want to, before we leave this, are you looking at the NORS, um, are you still looking at the NORS reporting system dashboard? I, yeah, I, I am. Okay. So look at outbreaks per state, have everything clicked. Okay. Okay. So that gives you like this heat map. I've never <laughs> oh, thought. Just, just, are you going to tell me it's risky to eat in Minnesota again? No, no. But I've never thought about, if you look at Minnesota, Wisconsin, uh-huh. Illinois, and Michigan together where they're, they, they're the bluest. Doesn't that outline kind of look like Florida? <laughs> Actually, <thought, laughs> like, could we say that 
that Illinois combined with Wisconsin, with the UP of Michigan and Minnesota, it's really Florida. That's the Florida of the Midwest. It looks the same. <laughs> it kind of does. Yeah. See, guy, right. Yeah, right. Like, does, yeah. I, I actually thought, oh my gosh, CDC has put Florida in the wrong place. But no, it's Florida's in the right spot. It's it's just my it's it's the uh, darkening of all those other states. So so if you put all those together, um, it's the, the and show title uh, Florida of the Midwest. Ah, <laughs> uh, all right. The other thing before we completely leave this, um, I, I'm intrigued that he reports um, illnesses per million population uh, in his table to two decimal places. So um, <laughs> for yes, some reason, for some reason, yeah, yeah, true, true, true. Uh, anyway, well, there you go. Um, so, oh, I had, I had hot takes on something else Sure. that we didn't talk about in episode 200. And it was the, um, it was the thing that, that, uh, that Larry Stringer, uh, tweeted at us from, yes. uh, from the internet and, but I need to now find it cause the, the link doesn't take us to it. And I'm going to go back into the, into the Twitter. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, um, what were what do you, uh, have you found it? You know what I'm talking about. I I I know the tweet. I have not found it yet. So let's go back in here. Blah blah blah. Larry Stringer. Blah blah blah. Found it. Oops. No. Larry Stringer is telling us something else. This is fascinating. This makes for good radio, right? It does me scrolling through my my Twitter timeline. Oh, while we're while we're talking about this. Um, uh, somebody uh, who invited us to Louisville sent me a message uh, on on Twitter that said, "So, what's with you being quote zippy in Don's address book?" That's a good question. You you should explain that, or maybe I should explain that. <laughs> you explain it real quick. Okay, so I'll explain it real quick. So, at, so, so this is funny, and this is this is a, a little thing that took me about uh, five seconds of my time, and continues to be. Um, uh, to bear delicious fruit. Um, and so Ben and I had a conversation at some point about nicknames and Ben, Ben, I think said something to the effect of, I've always wanted a nickname. Yes. And I said, well, what nickname would you like? And he said, I would like to be zippy. And I said, I'm going to try to start that. I'm going to try to start that trending uh, hashtag hashtag nicknames. I'm going to try to start that trending. And so what I did was I went into my address book and where it said Ben, um, I changed it to Zippy. And so now, um, whenever I'm sending a message to somebody, or I'm messaging somebody, and Ben's in the, in the same uh, message group, um, he shows up as Zippy. And inevitably, it leads to questions like uh, like those of our uh, of our colleague. So uh, yeah, so that's uh, the story about how Ben got his nickname. And and, and it actually came from uh, another uh, offline conversation. I was at a meeting of a bunch of people, and and I believe at least one person in the room was nicknamed Zippy. So I had to uh, let Don and uh, and Michelle and Linda know this. And so I and then then uh, the, subsequently at the same almost the same time we're like, well, that's going to be your new nickname. So I'm I'm known as Zippy. Okay, so I found what I wanted to talk about, and, and this will be my last thing to, to bring. But uh, Larry Stringer sent us a, uh, a message about something that I hadn't seen, which is a report from the European Center for Disease uh, Prevention and Control, which is confusing because it's not the, um, the American Center for, for Disease Prevent Control and Preventions. Uh, but it's the ECDC, Technical Report, Community Engagement and Institutional Collaboration During Outbreaks of Shigatoxin, Vero cytotoxigen producing E. coli in Ireland. 
Um, so this is a really, really nice, like it's a nice report. And what I don't really actually want to talk too much about the, the results. I want to talk about the, just the way that this was set up and the methodology. And so <laughs> I don't know if you, Don, Don, if you had a chance to look at it, but what, what the goal was, was to take a bunch of, um, illnesses in Ireland and try to figure out why, what happened, um, and so not just the, um, the case control study, uh, not just the, the epidemiology, but, but I'll read directly from the aims. Identify good practices and patterns of cooperation between affected communities and the official institutions mandated across STEC and VTEC outbreaks. Identify intersectoral collaboration between health and non-health related sectors with regards to infectious disease outbreaks, such as STEC and VTEC, and identify model community engagement actions for other EU countries, which is going to include one less EU country, I believe, soon. Uh, so the methods, though, were really fascinating. So it's it's actually using a, an approach that, that I've used in the past that we use a lot in um, trying to understand uh, practices and behaviors and what, what people do. And so they used a qualitative case study research design. And so they used document review, interviewed a bunch of technical expert experts, used focus groups and did a bunch of stakeholder mapping. And so in this, this report, um, you know, they go through the, the illnesses, but the stuff that I found the most fascinating was, uh, is, can be found on figure two, um, on, page 10 of this report and it's the stakeholder mapping of s tech and v tech outbreaks in creches in ireland and creches are are uh not crepes that's a different word um that's a these this is a french word uh that, that means like nursery daycare facility early childhood uh areas and in if you want to get a snapshot of how um, complicated disease control is foodborne or, or not. Take a look at this, where where there are, um, uh, you know, there's about 40 different stakeholder groups. Um, so you've got departments of health, and then you've got a uh, you've got uh, laboratories that are involved, and you've got um, the system of communicating infectious diseases internally. Then you've got the media. Then you've got grandparents and pharmacies and neighbors, where people are getting all different information about managing outbreaks and what to do. And that, to me, this is like one of those aha moments in reading a report similar to uh, the traceability diagram that, that was uh, shown by FDA following the investigation into the Yuma-sourced uh, Romaine-linked uh, outbreaks um, in 2017 and 2018, or 2018, 2019, whatever it was. But this it just shows how complex where information moves and all the people that, that are involved in trying to either manage an outbreak manage the communication about the outbreak, provide information about an outbreak and, and where decisions get made. And I just, I mean, I, this, this was the gold for me was just a really, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's an elegant study design being biased that I use a similar design a lot of, a lot of times, but it's also just a, a, a beautiful output that, that can show how complex the system is.
Well, and this is a nice tie back actually to episode 200 where we attended the rapid response team um, meeting. And and I, I you 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 were uh, jet setting in and jet setting out, um, but I was actually there for some of the meeting. Um, and to hear about these rapid response teams and how they work to find uh, and manage uh, and 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 you know diagnose and and solve outbreaks. <clears throat> is fascinating. And, and, you know, one of the things that they talk about as a success story for the rapid response teams is the fact that they, they learn, they, through these meetings, they've met each other and they, they have connections. And so when something starts to happen, they can move, they can navigate this web, uh, like, yes. like, uh, the figure two that you show, they can navigate that web fairly deftly, um, to, to hopefully in many cases, um, uh, solve, uh, these outbreaks or, or chase down these outbreaks as best they can. Um, I, I also want to say, um, since it, well, so for First of all, acknowledge that the, do- the dog in my background, which which I'll, we'll 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 tie to in a minute. Um, uh, if you if you look up Crash on Wikipedia, there's three there's a disambiguation page. Um, it could be a daycare center. Um, it could be a nativity scene, oh. um, which is appropriate given the holiday season that we're in right now. Or it could also mean a term from zoology, which is animals taking care of young that are not their own, which kind of ties back to uh, the the daycare center. Um, oh. And I and I just want to say if you if you will and we'll link to Larry's Twitter profile because he did share this wonderful article with us um so Larry um, has a really interesting uh, uh, Twitter bio, uh, husband and father of three, one autistic son, scared of dying of botulism. Um, and he has lots of great uh, tweets, uh, many of which are about dogs. Um, and so that's the, that's the tie-in to the, the dog barking in the background. <laughs> yeah, nice, nice. And Larry, Larry is uh, – um, we met him in person a couple of years ago when we did a live podcast in, in Minnesota. Um, so shout out to Larry for um, not, not only great content this, uh, this episode. Episode, but sustained uh, friend of the podcast. So, so good job. I think that's a show, Don. What do you I think? think? It is. Um, all right. Well, this is this, it's easy now. It's episode two hundred one. We're we're basically starting over the counting after episode <laughs> our birthday episode two hundred. Um, and uh, so so it's uh, yeah. So it's an this is an o, this is an o one. Um, we'll uh, in the in the new year. One of the things to um, to look forward to as listeners, if you made it this long, one of the things that, that Don and I are, are exploring that we, I don't think we've talked about on the podcast here, but uh, putting together a way for you to support not not so much the podcast itself or us, but we're interested in in creating some some opportunities for um, for food safety people and, and awards and, and stuff like that. And so we're exploring some ideas um, through IAFP, but um, we hopefully we'll have some sort of a, um, a patron or something uh, set up uh, in the new year um, that is on my on my quish, Christmas wish list uh, that is that I will uh, that I will do that um, but uh, but yeah I, um, happy happy holidays to you Don um, and uh, we we're saying Merry Christmas now Ben we're saying we're putting we're putting <laughs> the say Merry Christmas again can we put the Merry back in Merry Christmas um, is that that's what we're supposed to do uh, Merry Christmas uh, it's we're, we're in we're in Hanukkah season now so um, so so and enjoy Hanukkah, all those, all the other good, good ones that happen this time of year. Um, all the best, all the best holidays. Uh, and also, uh, um, our, our friends from our writing buddies, um, Michelle Daniluk and, and Linda Harris, who people have, have now learned about some, uh, and uh, from the podcast, they also, we talked to them this morning. They wanted us on their behalf to wish all of our, uh, our, our listeners a Merry Christmas as well. 
or or whatever they're happy holidays the holiday whatever whatever, whatever holidays you celebrate yeah love the holidays i love i want more holidays we'll take them all <laughs> i would never like i wouldn't take i would i'm a fan of more hol- i would take one every day you know i would celebrate them all uh, well <laughs> I, this is why we need a, a socialist president it's true oh dear more holidays uh, more best all the best holidays um all right well uh all right don i'll talk to you soon bye-bye bye-bye I, I am like, like not in my office for sure. Um, over from the week from the twenty second until I'm probably coming back on the second. So if you want to squeeze something in before the second, we we could. I, if you are available on the second or third, I'd be happy to record a podcast on those two days. Uh, yes, I'm actually available on both days. I, I have uh, I'm I'm not having a lab meeting with my students on the third, so uh, I'm I'm working from home uh, both days. Why don't we try? Why don't we do it the third? Okay, and I'll be uh, I may be in my office. Um, campus T two o two. I you pick a time. I'm I'm wide open. Oh, let's do ten o'clock. That's Perfect. a good time, right? Yeah, it gives me time to get. Uh, I like to watch my CNN, drink a coffee in the morning. Um, that'll, that'll show all my liberal, liberal media, fake news biases. Um, perfect. 202, 10 to one. Um, cool. And then this one is mine. It is. Um, and I, I'll, I'll wait to post, like I, I'll be able to, I should be able to get this done this afternoon, but what, let's post 200 first, whenever you get a chance, like obviously. Yeah. And, and I'm still waiting. Uh, so I've got, yeah. um, uh, Ted from the internet who is fixing the audio. Um, and, uh, and, and he should have that for me today. Um, and I'm anticipating it's going to be good because he, he did what was really truly amazing work on the, on the crappy MP3. And then, uh, I did get the audio engineers to send the 
WAV file, um, and the WAV file, just the raw WAV file, was better than the MP3. And so I anticipate that if he does his magic on the WAV file, it's going to be like, uh, you know, uh, only mildly annoying to listen to. Oh, so. awesome! Perfect. Mildly annoying is great. We yeah. can handle that. Um, and then this one sounded this one sounded good. Once you re- like, I don't know what the crackle was, but it was uh, it was yeah. you know I, I complain. I was going to launch into a complaint, but so the the I'm really glad I'm getting a new computer because I think the. The ports on the on my 15 inch are wearing out. Oh, like yeah. I was plugged into, and I think this happened before. I was plugged into, so I've got two ports on either side. Um, the the left hand port, the furthest one back, I use for power a lot of the time. And that one, sometimes the power plug when I plug it in, it's loose. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. I I use the right hand uh, far back one for audio, and it's it's also loose. And so I've just taken to using the closer ports because they're more snug. I guess because they don't get used as much. I Wow. So yeah, it's the work on their port design, but yeah. well, yeah, and I'm and I mean, and it's not like like I can get. I mean, I'm not using too many ports, and you know, I use it for my external display, but I can't. You can't get away from no port for power, right? Like like you know, use less ports. Except I literally need to plug it in all the time. I'm going to need power, <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. Uh, okay. Cool. So we got we're we're all to go. So we're on for the third at 10 a.m. I've got the audio for this. Um, yeah, throw the show notes in whenever you get a chance. Yeah, I'll do the show notes right now. Cool. And then, uh, yeah, I should be, um, I'm teaching, but not talking the whole time. So I I should be able to get my, uh, um, get everything ready to go for notes for whenever we're ready to go, whenever you're ready for, for 200. Perfect. Yep. Yep. Thanks, Don. Yep. Bye. Bye.